This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Rivka Brown, and for the very first time, I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me is Navarra Media's very own contributing editor, the wickedly talented Ash Saga. Tonight, we have got a whole load of exciting stories for you, MPs back in Parliament and lots of stories clamouring for your attention. Among them, the crumbling concrete scandal delaying schools reopening, Labour making a pledge around income tax and a bad faith attempt to shift the Labour anti-Semitism crisis to the Green Party. Stay tuned for all of that. On to our first story. Keir Starmer has taken the opportunity today of a new parliamentary session to reshuffle his shadow cabinet and the Blairites seem to be rising to the top of the deck. Let's start with the big winner. Angela Rayner has been promoted. Though elected as deputy leader of the party, Rayner has now been named shadow deputy prime minister. That's Starmer confirming she'll be second in command if Labour wins the next election. She's also taken on the department for levelling up. That's a major loss for Lisa Nandy, who previously held the levelling up brief. She's been demoted to Shadow Cabinet Minister for International Development. Given Andy started out in Starmer's cabinet as Shadow Foreign Secretary, she's fallen pretty far. If a victorious Labour leader puts international development back under the Foreign Office, Nandy wouldn't even be in the cabinet. Sky Sam Coates had this inside info on Nandy's meeting with the boss. Hearing the Lisa Nandy demotion was pretty brutal. Initially, he just said he wanted her to do this role and bigged it up. She then said, it sounds like you don't really want me, and he effectively admitted that. But she's put out a statement saying she's a team player and accepted the job. Ouch. Moving on, Arch Blairite Pat McFadden, previously Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, has had a major promotion. He's been made Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and National Campaign Coordinator. McFadden allegedly likes to boast that he was the first Labour shadow minister to be sacked by Corbyn, and he will now be in charge of election strategy. So expect to see more Blairite commitments to economic conservatism. Liz Kendall is another Blairite stepping into a big job, with Starmer putting her in charge of work and pensions. That also means benefits. In 2015, Kendall was the only leadership candidate to vocally endorse the position of acting leader Harriet Harman in abstaining on the government's welfare bill. That's the bill, by the way, that introduced the two-child benefit cap and limited tax credits. This is what Kendall said at the time. We have to listen to what people have said to us, that they don't trust us and we have to change as a party. People said to us, we don't trust you on the money, we don't trust you on welfare reform. If we're going to oppose things, we have to put something else in its place. Also moving up is Blairite Peter Kyle. Formerly Shadow Secretary for Northern Ireland, he'll now take on the more business-oriented Science, Innovation and Technology Brief. In the 2015 leadership election, he backed Liz Kendall. And in 2016, he supported Owen Smith in his failed attempt to oust Jeremy Corbyn, commonly known as the chicken coup. Hillary Benn has been moved from the back benches back into the Labour cabinet. He replaces Peter Carl as Shadow Secretary of State for, for Northern Ireland. In 2016, Benn was sacked from the Shadow cabinet after reportedly briefing against Jeremy Corbyn. The year before, as Shadow Foreign Secretary, he'd argued against Corbyn and with David Cameron in favour of Britain bombing Syria. There are some other moves. Jonathan Ashworth has been moved out of the Shadow Cabinet altogether. He's now Shadow Paymaster General. Shabana Mahmood goes from National Campaign Coordinator to Shadow Justice Secretary. Two Shadow Cabinet members have simply switched roles. Dangham Debonair takes on the culture, media and sport brief from Lucy Powell, while Powell has been moved into Debonair's former job as shadow leader of the House of Commons. There's also been a surprise resignation today. Rosina Allen Khan was shadow cabinet minister for mental health, but has now stepped down. She is an NHS doctor who worked on the front line during COVID while also an MP. Allen Khan wrote this in her resignation letter. Dear Keir, it has been a pleasure to serve as the Shadow Cabinet Minister for Mental Health over the last three and a half years. 
As discussed previously and in our call earlier, you made clear that you do not see a space for mental health portfolio in a Labour cabinet, which is why I told you many weeks ago that I would not be able to continue in this role. There may be more to Alan Khan's resignation than just that, though. She's previously spoken out against Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting's plan to use private health forms in the NHS, saying this. I've got to be honest. I'm not totally aligned with the idea of using private providers to clear backlogs. I think we should be injecting money into the NHS. It isn't on its knees. It has fallen flat on its face. I personally would not like to see money from the NHS going into the pockets of private providers to clear backlogs. I would like to see the NHS rebuilt properly. Ash, what does this reshuffle tell us about the potential priorities of a future Starmer government? I think the major thing that this reshuffle tells us is that whatever hope there was for some kind of soft left compromise, and by soft left, I don't mean that in a disparaging sense. It's literally this kind of um, tendency within the Labour Party, which is, you know, not not full fat socialism, but are into the idea of a bit more redistribution closer to the unions and want to see a a different balance between Labour and capital, is that those forces of the soft left have been almost completely and utterly marginalised within Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. And the way in which figures like Lisa Nandy have been treated, don't forget, she was a runner and rider for the Labour leadership in 2020, is nothing short of humiliating. To be dealt two demotions back to back, and in particular being demoted from the levelling up brief, which is something that, regardless of whether or not you identify with Lisa Nandy's politics, of course, we've got huge political differences with her, um, it was something that she was across, and it's something that she felt very, very strongly about, and it's something that she was seen as a credible voice on. Um, that being given to Angela Rayner, I think to sort of give her this enhanced optics role rather than her having any kind of meaningful say over the direction of policy or the direction of the Labour leadership. It's just a way of making Angela Rayner a more comprehensive flak jacket for absorbing criticism from the left so that Keir Starmer can continue doing what he's doing, which is, you know, a restoration of, uh, you know, Blairite ideology, appointing Liz Kendall as a shadow work in pensions. Now, she's someone who got completely trounced in the leadership race against Corbyn. She's someone who doesn't have a base of support within the party beyond, you know, some Labour first or progress, whatever they're called, you know, them man. Um, And she's someone whose ideas that she was in favour of, which was very, very pro-austerity, very in favour of tightening up on welfare. That was during the leadership race in 2015. Um, That doesn't have a huge social base out there in the electorate either. And so what I think this reshuffle shows is that there is this deeply anti-democratic tendency with Keir Starmer. Now, usually when we talk about that, we talk about that in terms of internal party democracy. The fact that he led a deceptive campaign in order to become Labour leader, broke every single pledge, doesn't care what the members who voted him in think, and goes like it or lump it. But it's also profoundly anti-democratic when you think about the fact that very popular ideas out there in the electorate, whether that's something like shifting the tax burden onto wealth or having better welfare spending or um, scrapping tuition fees. These ideas have no political representation amongst the leadership of the two major Westminster parties. Now, that should be something that is looked at with some degree of alarm and criticism by the commentariat. But instead, what you're seeing are the likes of Aisha Hazarika going, oh, this is such a great reshuffle, such serious, articulate folks. Because what she's saying is, these are my people, right? These are my mates. These are precisely the kind of people who I feared would have been marginalized and you know pushed out of cushy jobs and had their career advancement, you know, permanently obstructed by a more left-wing leadership. So this is what I think this reshuffle is all about. It's about sealing those very popular ideas in a political tomb and making sure 
that the Blairite wing of the party will never be without a well-paid job ever again. While we're on the subject of Labour's growing Blairite tendency, I just want to draw your attention to something that the Mirror splashed on Sunday. Keir Starmer has pledged not to raise the 20p basic rate of income tax if Labour wins the next election. The Mirror writes this. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves last weekend promised she would not increase the top rate of income tax. Asked if he could make the same promise for those on the, break, on the basic rate, Mr. Starmer said, we're not increasing tax across the board. Pushed on whether he would put up income tax, he said no. So no increase in the basic rate of tax and no increase in the higher rate either. And Labour has also already ruled out borrowing and a wealth tax. So that means if there's going to be any extra spending, and that's a big if, the money's going to have to come from somewhere else. But where? This is the answer Starmer gave to the mirror. We've got to grow our economy. It doesn't mean we can't do anything because there's a huge amount of reform that needs to happen. If you take the health service, for example, true it is that the health service needs a lot of money, but also it needs reform. We need to change the model so that it's fit for the next 70 years, making sure that we go down the preventative route, making sure we've got health and mental health closer to the people where they are in their communities, making sure we're using the very best cutting edge technology. So you've got there the vague promise of growing the economy, whatever that means, and the very concrete pledge to reform the NHS, which, as we all know, as politicians speak for cuts or, worse still, for privatisation. Ash, Labour wants to be seen as responsible managers of the economy. Why won't they spell out how they're going to pay for their plans? Because it's very straightforward, Rivka. You simply grow the economy. You just press that big <laughs> button that they have at the Treasury labelled grow the economy. And it's as simple as that. Um, I mean, look, some of this is a bit of strategic squid ink, right? They think that there is a sense, and this is, you know, a fairly legitimate point of view, um, that if you spunk all of your economic plans now, what you do is you get all of the attack from the right wing press for it, particularly because you're not bound by those quite tight broadcasting rules that you get uh, during a general election. So you get all of the attack, you get none of the gain, and you also have the risk of the Conservatives nicking off some of your policies and rebadging them. So that would be the most charitable reading of why Keir Starmer and his gang are carrying on like this. But I think that from what we've seen of Keir Starmer's priorities, from the policies that he's said that he's not going to pursue, from his attitude towards his own leadership pledges, and of course, the composition of his shadow cabinet in a much more Blairite direction, it's safe to say that taxing wealth, having a fairer redistributive taxation system where people's incomes, their wages from work aren't so strenuously taxed, but capital gains, um, estate taxes, things like this are actually what's targeted, that that doesn't seem like it's going to be a massive priority for Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, and so on and so on. I think that that's a clear signaling of, you know, the economic direction that they want to take. And again, if they were to say these things outright, if they were simply to say, look, what you're going to get is austerity with a red rosette, it would go down like a cup of cold sick, even with, quite frankly, a, a, a credulous media reception that's been offered for Keir Starmer thus far in his career. Um, I think that the call of don't say stuff now because you're going to get attacked for it and you're not going to... Um, you know, you're not going to see the benefits from it because the Tories might nick it. I think that the big downside of that as a strategy is that, you know, even if Keir Starmer hadn't proven himself to be in many ways a uniquely deceptive politician, even if all that stuff wasn't the case, you would be in the position of trying to make an elect a general election pitch 
on the basis of a set of ideas and principles that you haven't put any time into building consent for. And so unless you tell a very simple story about how things are going to be paid for, the fact you're going to address inequality by doing something about the outrageous hoarding of wealth and the extraction of wealth from workers that we've seen in the society, then it's going to be really hard to get buy-in for policies. Luckily, Keir Starmer has you know, in, inherited the Labour leadership at a time where the Tories are in free fall because of issues of their own making. But I think that when the honeymoon period, you know, fades, you know, if and when Keir Starmer does form a government, he's going to find it very difficult to get support to do things when he hasn't put any work into persuading people that these are the things that should be done. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. On to our next story. It's been a bad day for kids across England and Wales returning, or as the case may be, not returning to their crumbling schools. It hasn't been a great day for Rishi Sunak either, who returned from his £5 million California penthouse to find a former senior Whitehall official blaming him for the concrete crisis. Jonathan Slater was the top civil servant in the Department of Education from 2016 to 2020. This is what he told Radio 4's Today programme. To be clear, the Department for Education goes to the Treasury and say, we need money to rebuild 300 to 400 schools a year, and you've got what? So while I was the Permanent Secretary, we got the funding to replace about 100 schools per year. A third or a quarter of what you'd asked for? Absolutely. What was your reaction when you were told that? So it's frustrating, of course, um, uh, when for you the most important thing is the uh, priority to be given to safety. Uh, If the Treasury, of course, have got a concern that there's never enough money for everything, but we were able to present them with really good data. We weren't just saying there's a significant risk uh, of fatality. We were saying there's a critical risk to life if this programme is not funded. While I was the permanent secretary in 2018, a concrete block fell from the roof of a primary school. So it wasn't just a risk, it was actually starting to happen. This spending review was completed a year after I left the department, and I was absolutely amazed uh, to see that the decision made by the government was to halve the uh, the school rebuilding programme down from 100 a year to 50 a year. To be clear then, in the department you were saying we need to rebuild three to 400, it became 100 a year, and after you left the department it went down to 50 a year. Yes, to be clear, uh, we know what's needed, three to 400. There's only so much capacity in the construction industry. There's disruption if you close schools and rebuild them. So the actual ask in the spending review in 2021 was to double the 100 to 200. That's what we thought was going to be practical in the first instance. I thought we'd get it, but the actual decision that the Chancellor took in 21 was to halve the size of the programme. Now, Ministers, the Chancellor, of course, was at the time. Uh, Rishi Sunak. A concrete brick had fallen from a school. (laughs) There wasn't just a risk. There was a critical risk to life. The government knew, basically, Slater saying, all but saying, that the government knew that children could die from this and, and were already being put at risk from falling bricks. You know, this is Grenfell all over again. This is Grenfell 2.0, but on a mass scale. The government knew, or in, in the case of Grenfell, contractors knew that this was flammable cladding and put it up anyway because poor people deserve to die. Poor people don't deserve to live happy lives. Poor people don't deserve to live in safe homes or safe schools. Poor people deserve flammable cladding and collapsible concrete. The Department of Education knew for at least a decade that three to 400 schools needed to be rebuilt each year 
because they contained concrete they knew was degrading and could put children at risk. But the Treasury go, only gave them mon enough money to do 100. So we've got three to 400 recommended, then 100. Then Rishi Sunak comes along. He's actually asked to double the budget and does the exact opposite. He halves the budget. <laughs> From a target of three to 400, we've now just got 50 a year. So Sunak, you know, Sunak's not to blame, of course, for, for, for slashing the budget to an absolute fraction of what civil servants had, had originally proposed it be. But of course, here's what he had to say in response to Slater's accusations. The former permanent secretary of Department for Education um, has said this morning that when they wanted to put more money into repairing schools, you as chancellor didn't allow that to go ahead and in fact cut that budget. Are you to blame for what's happening now? And do you want to apologise to parents and pupils? No, I think that is completely and utterly wrong. Actually, one of the first things I did as Chancellor in my first spending review in 2020 was to announce a new 10-year school rebuilding programme for 500 schools. Now, that equates to about 50 schools a year that will be refurbished or rebuilt. And if you look at what we've been doing over the previous decade, that's completely in line with what we've always done, about 50 or so schools a year refurbished or rebuilt. That's what I announced as Chancellor in my first spending review. I can't believe why I'm watching, folks. Sunak is confirming that exactly what Slater said. He's admitting he cut the budget to allow only 50 schools to be rebuilt per year. And that was in 2021. And just shortly before, Sunak and his wife had personally donated more than £100,000 to his alma mater, Winchester College, the uber-rich public school where fees are over £15,000 per, per term if you're a boarder. You know, this is a straightforward transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. Sunak is at the same moment as he is cutting funding for schools to be not just good, not just, you know, high quality, but even just safe to step foot into. He is transferring money to his old school to, to make it even more state of the art than it already is. It, nothing could better encapsulate, nothing could be a better allegory of the trans, up, upward transfer of wealth in this country from poor to rich. You know, Sunak, and I think we need to think about it as what it is, you know, it's, it's a deliberate attempt to, to starve schools of cash. It's, it's, you know, I wouldn't be so dramatic as to say Sunak wants children to, to, to die, <laughs> but I would say that Sunak certainly wants to see the state school system crumble through starvation of state funds, just as he does the NHS. And this is exactly what it is. This is exactly the tactic. It's not an over and an outright attack on the NHS or on schools. It's the slow death through starving it of funding progressively until schools can't keep themselves up, until we need, you know, uh, private companies to step in and create unregulated uh, academy chains, until you know, people have no choice but to um, accept the privatization um, through the state system, through academies and through just private schools and public schools of our schooling system. These schools that are falling apart are not going to be rebuilt. There are not going to be enough schools for children in this country to attend in just the same way as there aren't going to be enough doctors and nurses um, in the NHS because they all will have left as the, as the salaries keep getting pushed lower and lower and lower. We're just gradually going to see the evisceration and the starvation of the system until I guess the private sector needs to step in. Just like Wes Streeting is already teeing up with the Labour government. The private, the private sector could do loads to patch up our struggling NHS. The private sector, I'm sure, could do loads to patch up our struggling schools until what we have is a private school system. The I newspaper has fact-checked Slater's claims about school rebuilding funds and reports this. The budget to carry out rebuilding work on schools fell by 41% under Mr. Sunak's watch from 2019 to 2020 to 2021-2022, from 765 million to 416 million. It means that while government borrowing and spending increased dramatically over this period as a result of the pandemic, the Treasury took the decision to cut capital spending on schools by more than 40% despite significant concerns over safety. Rishi Sunak isn't the only Tory who's deprived schools of crucial funds to keep their buildings intact, of course. This House of Commons library graph shows how the Tories attacked school funding for capital projects like repairs and rebuilding. 
In the 2000s, the Labour government launched its Schools for the Future programme, pushing massive capital investment into the sector. Under Gordon Brown, capital allocation was nearly £10 billion each year. But once the Tories took power, they steadily slashed that budget, with Michael Gove finally cancelling Labour's programme in 2011. By 2021, the budget for capital spending was, in real terms, half what it was in 2009. Those budgetary cuts were put to Education Secretary Gillian Keegan on the Today programme. Why did Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor, preside over a further cut to the capital spending on schools so that in 2021 it was the lowest capital spending since the Conservatives came to office since 2009? And this, by your description, is three years after a beam had collapsed in a primary school. Well, I know we've spent £15 billion since 2015. So that's the amount we've spent but, but on I'm, capital. I'm sorry, Secretary of State, you're throwing numbers out, which well, have that's no actually meanings a number, unless which is it's a factual number. with something else. Though. What do you want to compare it with, Nick? What I'd like to say is... I'll compare it to the Labour programme, Building Schools for the Future. No, let's compare it. Because that spent a lot more let's do what the and did not deliver Library does, nearly which as is many respected by all parties, okay. and do it in real terms over time. It's a 50% cut in real terms over 10 years, and that figure was the lowest uh, ever figure since 2010. So the lowest figure in 10 years. Well, what we've done is delivered much better value for money. Much more schools have been rebuilt. Much more schools are going to be rebuilt. We've got a grip of RAC. You've got a grip on RAC. It doesn't look like it when 52 schools have been closed after being identified as, quote, at risk of sudden collapse. And a further 104 are scrambling for steel beams to prop their ceilings up. Also in that interview, Keegan admitted that hundreds more schools across England could be affected. There's another Gillian Keegan interview on the crumbling school scandal that we should talk about. The Education Secretary also spoke to ITV, where she tried to pass the buck. It is not the job of the Department of Education, but we chose to do that because we wanted to make sure that we had that information centrally. On top of that, we wanted to... on that, sorry. Yeah. A school collapsed... Yes. And it took you four years to send out questionnaires to find out how many schools had rank. No, we sent a warning out to the people responsible. But you're saying that the government is not responsible, ultimately, no. for the safety of children in schools. The, the school building's responsibility is with local authorities and multi-academy trusts. Do you believe the government did everything but we in have, its power? But, but, but we've taken further now. Do you believe the government did everything in its power, has done everything in its power, to make sure that children aren't being taught in schools that could collapse without warning. Absolutely, because the responsible bodies, the responsible bodies have that duty. What we have done since is we have basically said we want to have more information centrally. Well, I, mean, so I don't think you should be congratulated on that. I mean, there are literally children. I'm not looking to, to be congratulated. I'm there just are, saying what we have done. There are literally children who've been going to school in buildings that could have collapsed. Children could have been seriously injured. No, the, no. Children could have died. And only now are you assigning caseworkers and money to sort this no, out. No, the responsible bodies have always been responsible for making sure they have surveyors, making sure they look at things like asbestos, having an asbestos plan, rack, etc. They have a responsibility for the maintenance of their buildings. It's true that local authorities are responsible for school maintenance, but they can only do as much as their budget will allow. And their budgets have been repeatedly cut. Despite knowing about the risks to schools since 2018, the Tories kept shrinking schools' cash. Maybe because it's not their kids waiting like sitting ducks in dangerous classrooms. No, their kids are safe and sound in Winchester College, in Eton College. Still, it seems Keegan would, after all, like that pat on the back for all her hard work. After that interview with ITV finished, Keegan was caught saying this. We will get a plan and every single one of them will be done. Okay, thank you, sir. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their and done nothing? No, no, no signs of that, no? Gillian Keegan, you've done a fantastic job. Gillian Keegan, literally, who even are you? 
You're literally, you're, the thing you're best known for is the person that the British government sent as a delegate to Pope Pope Benedict XVI's funeral. Like literally that's all you've achieved as education secretary, maybe pissing off a bunch of teachers for wearing a 10K Rolex watch in a, in a negotiation settlement. Like that is what you are known for, the Pope and your Rolex. Like the Tories want a gilded lettuce for destroying this country. It's absolutely maddening. Like they think that they should get a gold medal for for, for falling out of bed in the morning, which I, which by the way is is quite similar to how Keir Starmer thinks of himself right now. Like these people need to do their jobs, and then they can get a, a medal. But as it stands, these people think they should be congratulated for putting children at risk, and because they've starved schools of funding. Like just, oh, give me a break. We should add that Keegan has since apologised for that hot mic moment. But one question that still hasn't been cleared up is who's going to cover the cost of temporary classrooms and rebuilding whilst the rack issue is resolved? On Sunday with Laura Kunzberg, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt said this. What I want to say also as Chancellor to parents is that we will spend what it takes to sort out this problem as quickly as possible. So do you commit to covering whatever costs are required to remove all of this dangerous concrete from schools around the country? We will spend what it takes to make sure that children can go to school safely, yes. Apparently the Treasury didn't get that memo. Just hours after that interview with Hunt, Hunt's own department began briefing against his pledge. The Guardian reports this. Treasury sources briefed that any such funding will come from the Department of Education's existing budget for buildings and not from additional funds. Whitehall sources said schools, academies and local authorities forced to bus their pupils to alternative sites will not be given extra cash either. Ash, why are the Tories being so stingy when millions of children are at risk? I mean, the question of why they're being so stingy is that it reflects their general contempt for public services. And I think that you've seen it with those, you know, car crash Gillian Keegan interviews, um, where she talks about what the Tories did to the education sector. She goes, well, you get much better value for money these days. That's simply not true. That is simply not true one bit. You've got schools being turned into providers of last resort because you've got so much of the social safety net being hacked to bits that children are coming in hungry with unwashed clothes, with unwashed hair, dealing with much higher rates of, uh, you know, children who who are reported to the local authorities because of issues of abuse and neglect, which are also things that are really associated with increased rates of child poverty. Nobody looks at that context. What schools have had to deal with because of the assault on the public sector and goes, oh yeah, we're getting really great value for money. Particularly when you look at the ways in which schools budgets and local authority budgets have been cut in tandem. Instead, of looking, I think, seriously at the cause of the problem, which is that you've had structural and institutional buck passing. So you've got central government funding uh, funding being cut to councils. You've got central government funding being cut to the Department of Education. But then you've also got the government turning around and saying, no, it's the responsibility of the local education authority to sort this out. What you do is you create an impossible context for schools and for local education authorities. Also, by the way, when it comes to academies, their funding isn't from the LEA. Their funding is directly from uh, the Department for Education. Um, So in terms of the attempted wiggling out of accountability um, by Gillian Keegan there. She's not even gotten her facts straight. I think in terms of the, the attitude to spending during the austerity years is that you had this myth which was being propagated by the Tories, their think tank allies like the Institute for Economic Affairs and the Taxpayer Alliance, and also huge swathes of the mainstream media as well. This myth was that, well, the reason why the economy is in trouble, the reason why we've got this big deficit is because there was too much waste in the public sector. Look at their budgets. We'll pick on 
these individualized cases of mismanagement or waste or bad decision making will say, well, this is rife through the public sector. Now, this was and is a misleading image of public sector finances. What you had that was being done a lot better was contingency planning, contingency saving. This was something which you saw in the NHS where you had money being allocated for forms of emergency capacity. The likes of Andrew Lansley and Jeremy Hunt, when he was health minister, looked at that and went, well, that's wasteful. Why are you saving your money for an emergency? I know what we'll do. We're just going to run this service at emergency capacity all the time and we'll cut any money, we'll cut any saving, we'll cut any forward planning for if there is something out of the ordinary that happens and we've got to dip into our pockets and spend something. We're going to cut all that emergency capacity because it's wasteful. You've seen a similar picture here with schools capital spending. So there are much more long-standing problems, I think, with the way in which the school's estate has been managed, outsourcing to outsourcing giants like Carillion being prime amongst them. But leaving that aside for a second and just sticking with austerity, you imposed a funding regime on schools, which meant that they had to make choices very, very frequently with each budget, with each tax year between immediate delivery of services and spending on longer term projects. And that's a no brainer. If you're a head teacher, you're managing a school and you've got so much money and you've got so many kids and you've got kids being uh, presented to you with, with, you know, greater need than they had before. And you've got less money than you did. What are you going to do? Are you going to fix this roof, which may or may not fall down or take the time to inspect it? Or are you going to be like, okay, no, we need exercise books. We need teaching assistance. We need classroom space. We need materials. Well, you're probably going to go for those really immediate day-to-day problems. And this is something which has been going on for a really long time. I mean, just last October, you had a survey of over 600 head teachers carried out Two-thirds of them said that they were considering cutting uh, spending on classroom assistance, delaying capital spending, or scrapping capital spending altogether. What that means is that things like very crucial repairs and refurbishments were being put off or abandoned altogether because head teachers were looking at budgets and going, well, it's that or not being able to function as a school at all. So this is a conservative created problem. It is a reflection of the utter contempt that they've held the public sector in for well over a decade. And what Gillian Keegan wants is a fucking pat on the head because technically the people who are having to implement the government's, you know, atrophied budgets had the statutory responsibility for this particular aspect of schools maintenance. It's insulting, it's pathetic, and it's also, in essence, a lie. It is fundamentally misleading. Let's take a quick look at Labour's take on the RAC scandal. Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Philipson appeared on Kunzberg on Sunday, where she said this. What we saw under the Conservatives was one of the very first acts of that incoming Conservative government in 2010 was to cancel Labour's Building Schools for the Future programme. That's had a big impact. I mean, the chickens are coming home to roost after 13 years. And I can think of a no more defining image about the last 13 years of Conservative government than children being sat in classrooms under metal props to prevent the ceilings literally falling in on their heads. It is scandalous what they have allowed to happen in our schools. And Rishi Sunak himself as well bears responsibility for this. He cut the budgets too. And now we're going to see good money going after bad for sticking plasters, not a long-term plan. And yet in Wales, where Labour has control of these things, the government only started surveying their state funding schools for this issue this year. Because they continued with the school rebuilding programme, unlike in England. But they didn't need to look at every single school that they had. They weren't looking for rack dangerous concrete. They are looking at it, absolutely. But they continued with a school rebuilding programme, unlike in England. Had the Conservatives not cancelled Labour's school rebuilding programme in 2010, every single secondary school in England would have been rebuilt or significantly refurbished by 2020. So think if, if that had happened, we would not be discussing some of these same schools that are now facing a real 
challenge at the moment. But, and but school we, leaders not focusing on getting kids back into the classroom around those wider challenges we've discussed, but then, managing those mitigations. But would you commit today then that if Labour wins the election, that you would pay for a full school rebuilding programme? I can't wave a magic wand and put right 13 years of conservative failure. Well, that's not my question. Failure. What would you like to I do? Could. Would you commit to paying for a full school rebuilding program if you win the election? I because that's what you're criticising them for cancelling it and not doing it. Would you commit to doing it? Firstly, we need to know what's going on. That's the important thing. Secondly, as in 1997, it will fall to the next Labour government if we win the trust of the British people to rebuild so much of what has gone wrong in our country. Absolutely schools, but GP appointments, uh, the fact that people can't get a good police response. There is so much that is going wrong. And mm -hmm. when you've had a government that's been in charge for 13 years, I think a degree of humility on their part in recognising their responsibility. But I'm asking what you are willing to commit for because you have very strongly criticised the government for not spending money on rebuilding schools. Would it be something that you will do if you win the election? There's a lot we'll have to put right. We had a plan. They scrapped it. Had they pressed ahead, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's the same broken record Labour whips out every time a journalist asks them anything remotely difficult. There's too much broken to fix everything. Okay, well, I guess it's too broken to fix everything. Might as well not bother, bother then, eh? Like, just give them a couple of DT lessons and I'm sure the kids will glue their own schools back together. Like, I'm begging the Labour Party to just have one shred of an idea about they would how they would govern this country, please. <laughs> Striking a similar note on Sky News was Thangham Debonair, who was asked whether Labour would invest in rebuilding schools. We don't know what state the economy is going to be in, and nobody, no parent, no child, no teacher would so expect you can't us. criticise the government so, for yes, not building schools the if you're not going to say actually what you will do is reinstate that building plan. They cancelled the building schools for the mm. future plan. Under Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, funding for school refurbishment was halved in 2021, by which time they already knew about the rack. Yes, I can hold them responsible for those two things because those are choices and politics about choices. They chose to cancel building schools for the future. And you they choose, as a Labour government, to reinstate it. And when we get our hands on the economy and we can actually see what mess they've left us and when we can see what the state of the damage is, we'll be able to assess what we can do. Politics is about choices. So why don't you make some, Thangham? <laughs> Unlike Devonair or Philipson, in an interview with The Mirror, Keir Starmer did talk about rebuilding, saying this. We're focused on the country. What a different country we would be if we had a change of government and a Labour government, because I would wake up every morning thinking, how can we fix the problems and not just fix them, but take the country forward to a better future? I think there's a yearning for that hope, that hope that the country can be fixed, rebuilt, and then taken forward and improved. That's what's driving this sense that it's time for change. It's time for the Labour Party focused on the country, bearing the torch of hope to take this country forward. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't keep a straight face. Like an AI could have written that. It's just ridiculous. He's managing to say so many words without saying a single one. So we've got this vague language about rebuilding the country. But when it comes to the real problem of rebuilding these crumbling schools, Labour's, like Starmer's Labour just cannot commit which will hardly reassure all the kids sitting right now and sitting, preparing to sit tomorrow under ceilings propped up with steel beams. Ash, why is Labour so insistent on making its campaign slogan, no, we can't? Actually, I think you'll find it wasn't, no, we can't. It was, um, we must be going forward. The time is for change to go forward and uh, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling <laughs> towards freedom. Um, I mean, what I found really interesting about that Thangham Debonair interview with Kay Burley is how similar it's been to Thangham Debonair media rounds for the past year or so. And if I were to hazard a guess, I would suggest that her promotion to Shadow Minister for Media, Culture and Sport was as a reward for effectively being the current minister for sadly, no, we can't. She's the person who you put up on the telly when you want to say, actually, no, we can't have a rent freeze. No, we can't have rent caps. No, we can't have 
you know, tuition fees being scrapped. And so I think it's that willingness to be the mouthpiece for unpopular austerity policies, which has given her this promotion within the shadow cabinet, to be honest. But in terms of Labour being so willing to say, you know, we've got to make these tough decisions, I'm afraid we can't do everything, you know, the Tories, it's their fault, they've ruined the economy. I don't think that there are many people in this country who would look at the possibility of children being crushed to death by falling concrete and they would go, it's a waste of money for us to do everything within our power to try and prevent that. You know, I don't think that children studying in a literally life-threatening environments polls very well in the red wall. You know what, for everything I say about the forces of, you know, oligarchs and, you know, corporate Britain and the markets, I don't even think that the markets like it very much. What this is, is totally empty, vapid signaling of seriousness on the economy by refusing to commit to spending commitments of any kind. Now, again, Part of the reason why they're able to get away with it is because the Tories have fucked it into the sun. But you won't be able to survive that in a different kind of media environment. And if the Tories were doing well, and by doing well, I mean that they were doing well amongst the media rather than doing well for the country. I don't think that Keir Starmer and his shadow cabinet would be getting away with, you know, hedging on the matter of, you know, restoring the schools for the future program, you know, reinstating a proper schools building program. They can get away with how bad they're being because of the media environment that they're in. And this is something which almost never prompts journalists to do a bit of self-reflection and going, hmm, the politicians we kept getting are really shit. I wonder what we have to do with that. Now on to our final story. The war on Labour's left-wing Jews continues, even when they're no longer in the party. This weekend, the Greens announced that Joe Bird would be their parliamentary candidate for Birkenhead. The move caused Labour right-wingers to lose their shit. Why? Because Bird is the one kind of person they hate most of all, a Jewish socialist. Bird was one of the many left-wing Jews Starmer has purged from the party since becoming Labour leader. Then a Labour councillor, Bird was automatically expelled from the party in 2021 for being associated with Labour against the witch hunt, one of the many left-wing groups Labour Party had recently prescribed. This wasn't the right-wing Labour machine's first attempt to get rid of Bird, however. That happened in 2019, when Bird was suspended over a joke. Here's her account of what happened at the time. Some people say anti-Semitism is really widespread in the Labour Party, and that's not an experience that I have. What's damaging is when there's accusations and witch huntery and people making allegations without evidence. And what we need to address that is a process of natural justice and due process. I was talking about this and I made a play on words. I said we need what I call a due process you know, a process based on fundamental human rights, for example. And when I was suspended, thousands of people in the Labour Party and outside the Labour Party rose up and said it was ridiculous for, for me as a Jewish person to be suspended for making a self-deprecating play on words. That's not about the battle of fighting anti-Semitism. It does nothing to challenge the far right. So clearly, as Bird explains there, she meant a process that didn't privilege anti-Semitism over other forms of racism and that wasn't liable to factional interference. That joke of hers, by the way, was later substantiated by Martin Ford KC. He wrote that, quote, the Labour Party was in effect operating a hierarchy of racism under Jeremy Corbyn. Not a hierarchy, by the way, in which Jews came bottom, but in which they came top. Ford also said the disciplinary process in Labour was, quote, not fit for purpose. Not content with hounding Bird out of the party, Labour right-wingers have set their sights on bullying her out of public life altogether. 
Rebecca Feiler is the campaigns officer for the Jewish labour movement and press officer for Hope Not Hate. And on Saturday, she tweeted this. The Green Party must decide whether to tolerate or kick out the cranks they absorbed from the Labour Party. Right now, it's looking like they're happy to continue to promote these people and create a home for them. Shameful. Really putting the hate in Hope Not Hate there, Rebecca. Meanwhile, JLM Chair Mike Katz was quoted in the Jewish News throwing his toys out of the pram. He said this. It's bad enough the Green Party accepting Joe Bird into their ranks after she was expelled from Labour for supporting groups which denied the party's anti-Semitism problem. JLM wrote to their leaders to point out rewarding racism wasn't progressive, but they ignored us. Now they've decided to double down and install Miss Bird as a parliamentary candidate. Do the Greens really think she's fit to be an MP? This is a terrible decision and will offend Jews in Merseyside and beyond. Writing to your political opponents, telling them they've got a problem with racism. It's like me writing to Naomi Campbell, telling her I think her jeans are too tight. Why in God's name would a five foot nine supermodel take fashion advice from a squirt like me? We have a major problem in the UK. A problem where a tiny group of self-appointed leaders working in undemocratic and opaque organisations like JLM and the Jewish Chronicle and the Board of Deputies claim to represent the hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in this country. These people then claim to have magically divined the will of the Jewish people and whisper it into the ear of politicians, when in reality, these people represent a very narrow set of political beliefs that are in no way universal to British Jews. I mean, the very suggestion that British Jews share a political outlook is, quite frankly, anti-Semitic. For their part, the Greens are unfazed by this entitled and bratty attempt to cancel Bird. Speaking to Navarra Media, the Green Party, again, their Jewish deputy leader, Zach Polanski, said this. Wirral Green Party has selected Joe Bird to be the prospective parliamentary candidate for Birkenhead based on her record as a highly effective and popular councillor in the Wirral. We are not about to start overriding internal democracy on the whims of other parties' activists. We make our own decisions about who should and should not represent the Green Party and are not in a position to comment on Labour Party internal processes. The Green Party rejects racism in all forms and has robust disciplinary measures in place to deal with complaints of racism, including anti-Semitism. The Labour right overriding internal democracy on the whims of party activists? Well, I never. Anyway, it's good to know at least one political party in this country respects its members. But let's think for a second. Why is the hatred for Bird so intense that it's followed her outside of the Labour Party and into the Greens? I mean, to me, the reason is pretty obvious. Bird has become public enemy number one of the Labour Party establishment because she's a triple threat. She's left-wing, she's Jewish, And she's now part of a rival political party. This means she's uniquely well-positioned to call out the Labour Party's bullshit when it comes to anti-Semitism. She can expose the way that Labour has used and continues to use Jews as an alibi for all manner of evils. Evils like this, claiming that opposing Israeli apartheid is anti-Semitic. Evils like refusing to engage with other forms of racism, such as anti-black racism and Islamophobia that are rampant in the Labour Party. And that's without even mentioning how Sama suspended his greatest rival from the party and then claimed it was anti-Semitism what done it. Bird can expose Labour's crusade against anti-Semitism for the weaponized sham it is. And now she can do it, say, from any spurious disciplinary process though apparently rabid Labour activists are still trying their luck. It makes you wonder if the term witch hunt isn't the correct term after all. Ash, if racism remains as rife in Labour as Martin Ford says, why are its activists busy attacking former members? The answer to that is very simple. The Labour Party does not and has never given a shit about racism. The anti-Semitism crisis was not because 
people cared about racism too much and they wanted to do everything that they could to stamp it out of the party. The anti-Semitism crisis was not even because people cared so much about anti-Semitism that they wanted to stamp it out of the party. Because if you applied the same logic that had been used to expel or to smear the reputations of various left-wing members to other members of the Labour Party, well, you probably wouldn't have a shadow chancellor of the Exchequer because, oh, what's that? That's Rachel Reeves, um, you know, standing Nancy Astor, a noted uh, fascist and, you know, dyed in the wool anti-Semite. But of course, those standards of guilt by association are never applied the labor right because fundamentally it's not about having a uniform standard of tackling racism it was about having a morally legitimate cover for marginalizing and drumming out the left from political life and so that's why you've got JLM who are about the labor movement applying the same rule book now that Joe Bird has been selected as a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Green Party. And I think that one of the things that is really important to say is that it was a really powerful thing. I think that the intensity of the moral panic, and a lot of it was a moral panic, and the fact that it was uh, whipped up leveraging racism, it really made me feel on a very personal level, very guilty. It made me feel like, oh my God, what have I been a part of? What you know, what should we do about it? Because that's a human response. It's a human response. So I think feel that any accusation of racism deserves to be taken seriously. But there were people who were being accused of being racist who did nothing wrong. I mean, one of the things that Joe Bird is being called over the coals for, as well as a self-deprecating joke about her own identity, is that she stood up for Mark Wadsworth, who was a lifelong Labour activist. He stood up in a meeting and he said that Ruth Smith had been briefing to the right-wing newspapers. And that was enough for him to be expelled from the party with people calling him an anti-Semite because they were like, oh, well, it's a trope. That's an anti-Semitic trope. Now, I think the idea of right-wing Labour MPs briefing to right-wing newspapers isn't actually an anti-Semitic trope. But leaving that aside, I think that this is something which may have turned out to be true. But here's someone whose reputation is in tatters on the basis of a very, very, you know, tententious uh, lie. He's got no way of standing up for himself because the way this moral panic worked is that it was you are what we say you are. So if the entirety of the mainstream media is united in saying, you guys are anti-Semites, that's what you are. You can't possibly defend yourself because that's anti-Semitic. You can't possibly say, well, hang on, these are some cases of anti-Semitism, but that's not representative of the membership as a whole. You you can't say that because that's minimizing the scale of the problem. And you also can't point out the very obvious thing, which is that a really serious issue like racism was being weaponized for political and factional gain because, hey, that's also anti-Semitism. So you create a perfect locked box of a moral panic. There's absolutely no way to engage it and to criticize it without becoming um, sus- suspected within it. Um, and it's really sad to see that it's happening again. It's really awful um, to see that, um, you know, there, there are people who who um, are being hounded for the rest of their political lives, it mm. seems, because mm. this was a strategy which worked very well the first time around. And I think that yeah, one of the things that I personally regret is that I'm able to say this stuff now. I'm able to like shape it into thoughts and articulate it. But at the moment when everything was really intense, I felt very paralyzed. That's something which I regret I regret personally.
I think that this story shows um, an example of the establishment overplaying its hand um, in that they went for a person who was now much more immune from the kind of criticism that they launched uh, at people like Joe Bird when she was inside the Labour Party because now her current party could not give a shit about the weaponization of anti-Semitism by people like uh, JLM. And, 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 you know, for one thing, their deputy leader, Zach Polanski, who, who was quoted earlier in a statement, is a Jewish leftist and sees straight through this. So, you know, they never stood a chance at getting uh, Joe Bird deselected as a candidate. I mean, for one thing, it's not even up to the, the leadership of the Green Party. It's up to the people of Birkenhead and, and, and they're not buying it either. So it is a good uh, sort of litmus test for how far we've come um, on this particular issue. Although that said, obviously, both Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott, lest we forget, both have the whip susp suspended still. <laughs> and so justice like, isn't being done and, and, and a kind of bureaucratic violence is still being, being enacted um, in the kind of aftermath or, or really the ongoing labor anti-Semitism crisis. So, you know, there, there's kind of light and shade in this story. But no, I think it's like a really kind of shining example of, of the weaponization of anti-Semitism against, uh, against political figures because she can't even escape it when she's no longer in the Labour Party. These people should have absolutely no claim on her. Who's my cats to be writing to a, a rival political party telling them what to do? It's laughable, honestly, but they're still trying it. And I think in so doing have exposed themselves for the frauds that they are. Thanks everyone for watching this evening. The show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. But for now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.